thank you. Can you imagine if you've done everything down here now? And I'm like, no, I'll be on stage. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. If you haven't met me, I think I've met most of you, but if you haven't met me, my name is Alice. Um, and I work here at St. Peter's, mostly with the young people here. Um, and yeah, I love it. So it's really, really nice to see you this evening. If you haven't been here, you won't know. But if you have been here, I hope you know that we have been in a like semi-fluid talk series <laughs> um, called Who Are We? And when we first thought about this talk series, the thing that we were thinking about was we had just come out of a talk series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. So we'd done weeks and weeks upon weeks of who am I, basically. Um, and what are my emotions and how does God respond to me and what does he think about how I'm important. We wanted to lift off our eyes from ourselves, although important, and lift them back to him and start thinking about, hang on a second, if that's who I am, this is my identity, then who, what is our identity, our wider church identity? How has he gifted us as people um, to be building his kingdom together and it not just being about us? So, I actually spoke this morning, and um, I was down to speak this morning and this evening, and I at first thought, you know what, maybe I'll just go for it, I'll write two different talks for two different services. And um, at the moment, currently in the morning service, they're in a, a talk series in Ephesians, which is why I was speaking on Ephesians. And actually, while I was thinking about this talk and writing this talk, I actually thought, I think that this really is an um, opportunity for us to be not only unified in our services, but unified across services. This is something that's really important that we understand across all of St. Peter's, and it's something that we are passionate about in our vision, which I'll get into. So I instead decided, you know what, I'm going to do the same talk, and we're all going to hear it, and I'm going to hope and pray that God does something particularly extraordinary where he unifies all of us. Um, even if spiritually, even if you haven't seen all the morning service people yet, but at the picnics you shall. Um, so as you just heard, this chapter in particular is actually about Christian maturity, really. Paul illustrates three specific hallmarks of what it means to be mature. One, we identify and use our particular gifts um, to serve our church and one another. Two, we display the sort of character that is appropriate to our new identity as new creations. And three, we are unified. Now, it's really important for us to understand in the outset that as Christians, um, unity is both an established theological reality. So it's what it actually means to be a Christian. We are unified under what Jesus has already done. So he's already completed the work. We are unified with him. We are unified in the Godhead. So being unified is just what it means to be Christian. But unity is also a present ongoing work. We're called in verse two and three to keep and keep on keeping the unity we have. It says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So what we know is that this unity is kind of like an ultimate or the ultimate consequence of the two other hallmarks of maturity that Paul mentions, which is using our gifts and displaying godly character. But 
I think it's important always when we talk about these things to kind of understand what this kind of maturity means for us as Christians and what it doesn't mean. Because it may seem a little bit ironic that me, a 20-something, is up here talking about maturity. Because the reality is, in our kind of societal understanding of maturity, maturity comes with age, maturity comes with experience, maturity comes when you know, we go to someone who we think they've lived life, they, they're gonna give me good advice, and we see those people as mature, not just because of their age, but because of their experience. But actually, that understanding of maturity really isn't, it isn't really a perfect blueprint for what Paul is talking about here. Now, of course, one would hope that the longer someone's a Christian, the longer they understand their, their kind of um, identity in Jesus, the more they become like him, the more they use their gifts. We would hope that, but it doesn't always happen, does it? I can think of some people who've been Christians for years and years who arguably, I would say, are quite spiritually immature. I think we all know those people. Equally, I know people who have been Christians less time than me who seem to be like fast-tracked, like I'm up for the confrontation, I'm up for becoming more like Jesus, I want to get mature, I'm going to do all of the things that I possibly can to be in, in step with him and to be filled with his spirit. So actually I find it quite challenging that there's people that are younger than me that I feel in some ways are more spiritually mature than me. So why does that happen? Because we aren't just talking about maturity and age. We aren't just talking about maturity and experience. We're talking about spiritual maturity. And just as verse two and three say, spiritual maturity requires humility and it requires patience and it requires a heart willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what is so clear throughout the book of Ephesians, if you wanna go back and read it sometime this week, but what is so clear throughout the whole book really is that there are all these examples of God's work feeling or seeming like it's a bit of a, it's almost like a bit of, a ta- of an attack on our ego. And I don't mean that like God is here to humili- humi- humiliate us or that God is um, rejecting who we are or our sense of self. I don't think that's what he does. But what I mean is that when we're so in step with God's spirit, what we recognize is that actually often our ego's interests are redirected. It's true that our kingdom selves actually challenges our kind of, like our individualistic view of self, which is what our society kind of purports to be a good thing. That's confronting. We learn things like, We must lose our life, we must die, we must carry our cross in order to find our life. We must serve, we must give away, we must draw close to one another to gain anything. And we learn about our kingdom that the last will be first. Right at the heart of the gospel is that the kingdom is upside down. Everything is about getting low to receive from one another and to serve one another and to draw close to one another and to draw close to Jesus. Now, what I'm not saying is that now I've explained to you what maturity is, that what you now need to do is listen to everything I have to say because I can confirm I'm spiritually mature. That's not what I'm getting at. 
What I am trying to say is that this passage is trying to, or I believe has something to say to all of us. We're all works in progress. As Paul says in verse 15, the more we are honest and speak the truth in love to one another, the more we will become the mature body we are intended to be. So my challenge right at the beginning of this talk, acknowledging that this stuff is actually quite confronting, my challenge is that let none of us think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Let's try and be humble. Let's try and receive what God could be saying to us. And let's try and receive that actually, maybe, if we're just honest and open about where we struggle, that actually we can let the spirit in. We can go like, this is where I'm at. Spirit, come and meet me. Spirit, come and meet us. And he can change us. He can unify us. He can walk us into maturity. It's all about him. Spoiler. So spiritual maturity is different from societal maturity. Okay. So no, now that's out of the way, let me remind you or let me kind of tell you a little bit more about where Paul has been in his letter up until now. So we're in the letter of Ephesians. He's written this book to the church in Ephesus. We're in chapter four. So in chapter, chapters one to three, Paul has kind of focused on theory and theology. So he's got into the like grittiness of his teaching, really. He has been reminding the church in Ephesus, remember, this is all that God has done, kind of listing through those things. Um, remember that by grace, we've been adopted by Christ, we're sons and daughters of the living God. Um, we've been unified um, with one another and with our Father in heaven. He's already, done, he's already done it. Nothing you can do about it. We are a new hum humanity. So he's kind of been declaring over the church in Ephesus, remember all of the stuff. Remember the gospel. Remember what I've already told you. And then it's here in chapter four that he kind of does a little side turn and he says, okay, now I've told you it all. Now you've got to do it. Now you've got to be who you are. He says in verse one, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So he spent three chapters telling them what the calling is. And now he's saying, right, let's get to work. Let's do the calling. And what this called life looks like is one of unity, which as I said, I'm gonna actually come back to right at the end because um, the other two hallmarks of maturity lead us into unity. So I'm gonna come back to unity at the end. So how do we get to this unity? Firstly, we use our gifts. We are all different parts of the body, says Paul. And when, verse 16, each part is doing its work, this is when the whole body grows and builds itself up in love. We and the whole Christian community become mature. So I guess the first and quite obvious question for you this evening are, is, what are your gifts? How are you using them? Paul identifies five in this passage. Let me remind you, it says this in verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, I'm not gonna walk us through each gift in turn, but I do think it's helpful for me to explain particularly what an apostle is here in this scenario because it can be quite confusing. Because in the apostolic age, the apostles 
were those who actually met Jesus, um, the, the historical Jesus, as in not spiritually. They literally, Jesus, me, Jesus, I'm an apostle. Um, so we're talking the 12 disciples and we're talking the apostle Paul because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So there's basically 13 capital A apostles. But that's not what Paul is really referring to in this passage. Paul is referring to a word um, which is apostle, which means sent out person, or more accurately, sent out with a purpose. So examples or other examples in the Bible would be Barnabas, um, Silas, uh, Timothy, and also Junior. So not just men, FYI. Um, None of these people met face-to-face with Jesus, but they're clearly apostolic in nature. So they are planting churches. They are getting themselves into spaces that the gospel hasn't been before. So they're missionaries. They are, if you will, um, kind of spiritual entrepreneurs. And I mean, you and I follow two people, I would argue, who are apostles. So Ben and Hanel had an experience. I mean, I'm not going to tell the whole story. They can tell you at some other time go to the newcomer's lunch. They tell you about their vision for St. Peter's and how they got here. Um, But they had an experience of the spirit where they really felt like God talked to them about Southeast London and broccoli in particular. And then they came here and then they started kind of like navigating how do we graft a church? How do we get to know the local community? How do we see the kingdom built? So they are apostles, small a, because they heard the voice of God and they followed it. They broke new ground. They got themselves here. So an apostle, small a, is something that anyone could be, but not everybody is because they might instead be a prophet, evangelist, um, pastor, or teacher. Paul is saying we need apostles to take new ground. We need prophetic people to kind of foretell us what God is doing, to kind of see it and tell us. We need evangelists to preach the gospel with power and with relevance. We need pastors to take care of us, and that also means to keep us accountable. We need teachers to help us decipher decipher what um, scripture means, especially in our relationship amongst um, culture and truth. So Paul, in this passage, is introducing us to this idea that there is diversity in gifting. We all have different ones. And it's important, or, or I think for some of us, maybe we've experienced this, but some church traditions are quite um, adamant that each of us have a, has a very specific one. So they will, you know, you are either a evangelist or a pastor or a teacher or whatever. And this may or may not be the case, but I think it is probably not that helpful for us to get too determined about it because... Um, Elsewhere in Romans 12 and also in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul actually has a whole different list of gifts that actually also include other stuff. So it's not like these are the only things you can be. So it's just important for us to know that there is diversity in gifting. That's the point he's getting at. Instead, we are all uniquely gifted by Jesus for the service of other people. Everyone is important. There is no hierarchy. There is no need to compete. No gift is better than the other. It just is what it is. And you may have heard me say this before, but I am actually still, in some ways, but I'm I'm quite surprised that I work for a church, but I certainly was when I first started the journey. 
It was never, ever, ever my plan. The way I became a Christian was quite like wham, bam. I'm now a Christian and now like, I kind of, it was quite a fast track experience. I didn't grow up in church, so that's a whole other story. But when I became a Christian, it wasn't my idea like, great, now I'm going to work for a church. What an amazing career path. Um, and actually, when I first came to church, the thing that I definitely brought with me, and to a certain degree still have, I had always been a massive boundary pusher. So I was definitely that child in school who would be doing the one thing the teacher had just asked me not to do while looking them in the eyes and smirking. Um, I'm looking at Lydia right now because I'm thinking, you would not, I bet you find those kids so frustrating. <laughs> and you. Um, yeah, so I was definitely that child. And I, you know, had grazed knees and, like, my hair was crazy and I was always up trees and, like, getting stuck places and my mum couldn't find me. I was that child. I was a bit feral. I was in Devon, so, you know, it's in the countryside at least. Um, but, as you can imagine, that then developed as I became an adult because by the time I got to university and I came to London, it was like an open door to, like, spontaneity, exciting things, hedonism, and the biggest overdraft I've still had in my entire life. Managed to pay it off. Um, but one of my biggest fears coming into church and then also becoming a Christian, my biggest fear weirdly wasn't, oh, maybe this is true. My biggest fear is, how does that mean I need to change? <laughs> like, Jesus seemed pretty attractive. Like, I quite liked the idea of Jesus. But the idea that I would then have to change who I was or, like, fit into some kind of box or that people would tell me what the right path was, that was terrifying. And it's for that reason that I feel quite lucky that I actually became a Christian in a church with kind of similar DNA to St. Peter's because my desire to be free and my desire to... Um, do exciting things and the rejection of the rules and arguably the kind of knee-jerk rejection of authority, although I've got a bit better with that, like I can trust now authority figures, but none of that was seen as threatening or something that was corrupt about me. Actually, people didn't tell me to stop going to all of the parties I love to go to with all my non-Christian friends. People didn't call me incessantly when I didn't show up to church one week. And actually, sometimes I wouldn't come back for a few months. And obviously they checked in on me, but they weren't kind of chasing me down the street. I think I would argue, hopefully, that it's because they had some spiritual wisdom. Maybe that's not what that girl needs. But the extraordinary thing about it was that every time I did come back to church, I almost always brought my non-Christian friends with me. So although I had a lot of confusion about what being a Christian really meant, and although I found it very difficult to kind of get in the rhythm of church being an, uh, a kind of part of my weekly life and becoming a Christian and developing any sort of maturity I found really hard. Actually, the thing that I was certain of was that I loved to tell people about Jesus. And I was actually really unafraid of lots of kind of territory that other Christians seemed to be like, oh, I wouldn't do that. Oh, no, I wouldn't go there. You know, I actually quite enjoyed that. I quite enjoyed the, the thrill of being like, actually, I'm a Christian. I'm going to tell you about Jesus in the midst of this scenario. 
And so what I know is that I am an evangelist. I like to talk about Jesus. In fact, I don't have this down here, but the other last week, someone asked me what my hobbies are. And I honestly spent about five minutes not being able to come up with any. (laughs) And I really was like, should I tell this non-Christian that my only hobby is Jesus? (laughs) Can I tell you about Jesus? (laughs) Okay, I'm cooler than that. Um, But when I came back to church, I had experience after experience after experience of the Holy Spirit empowering me so then actually I got better and better at talking about Jesus and then I had experience after experience after experience of being part of a family where I was getting to know people who were actually able to be like we see who you are you love talking about Jesus you still keep doing that like real encouraging people around me and so I started to understand that this unrelenting kind of drive within me was most satisfied when I told people about Jesus my favorite hobby Um, And this is how your gifts are supposed to feel. I know this might not be what we often hear in church. And in fact, I know that for some of us, this might not be what we've we've kind of experienced in church. But spoiler, we're actually supposed to have fun here. We're actually supposed to like feel alive and like use the things that we really enjoy. And then see people come alive and become Christians. And we're actually supposed to have a good time. And this isn't to say that it isn't hard work sometimes. Look, it is. Sometimes it is. And it's also not to say that there will be times where someone, namely maybe me, calls you up and says, I know putting out chairs is not your favorite thing, or I know that coffee isn't your like number one gift, but I desperately need someone to help. <laughs> so there are times where we go, yeah, I'll just do it because it's the right thing to do and that person needs help. But my point is, we're not, suspe- we're not supposed to spend our every waking moment only doing things because it's the right thing to do. We're supposed to feel alive. We're supposed to do the things that we feel Jesus is calling us to do. We're supposed to feel like there is a well of his water springing up within us and we cannot help but do it. It's supposed to be free, not weighed down. So instead of asking the question, what is your gift? I want you to think about what makes you feel alive? What makes you feel most you? We, as in you and I, as individuals, and us all together as a kingdom family, it actually says here that we're unable to grow into maturity and live a life worthy of our calling if we're trying to fit into a box that doesn't fit us. That is what Paul's getting at. So actually, it really doesn't help you if you're trying to fit into that box. And arguably, it doesn't help us either because you can't be like the body part we need. We actually need the thing that you want to do. <laughs> Which brings me to my second point. Freedom in our spiritual gifting is massively important, like I've just talked about for 15 minutes. So please keep that in your head. Freedom is massively important when it comes to gifting, but we will not be used as powerfully for the kingdom if we don't also have a heart and a character willing to become more like Jesus. I'm sure um, many of us have heard stories, or for some of us, 
maybe have even experienced, um, like personally experienced, incredibly gifted leaders who have actually not turned out to be who you thought they were, who have actually had quite painful and arguably maybe even public falls from their leadership, falls from grace. Happens in the local church, happens in, the wor- in worldwide Christian ministries, and you might think it, happen- it happens out there in our world. Leaders having this catastrophic fall and actually it really shaking us. They aren't who I thought they were. I thought I knew them. And obviously, I could do, I mean, we could do a whole series of talks about what that is <laughs> and how we get through that and the trauma that that causes and where God is in the midst of it all. But I want to kind of highlight one specific thing. I think often in our, in our type of church tradition, we put a lot of emphasis on gifting, which is very important, as I've said. Hear me. But sometimes we forget the other side of the spiritual maturity coin. We forget to look or we forget to encourage like a character developing, a character building, <laughs> you know, solid, godly character And what I mean by this is we see people like get up on stage and they're like, you know, slicing down, like bite-sizing the Bible and it's like really engaging and it's funny and it's nice to be around them. And there's this like buzz around the whole thing. And we're all like, oh my gosh, you should all come. We should invite all of our non-Christian friends because they're really good at it. Or we have, you know, worship leaders who are extraordinary and they get up and the spirit falls and we're all, you know, basking in the presence of the Lord. And it's all amazing. And then we see, you know, um, examples of incredible fruit. Like people are becoming Christians. It's a whole thing. The kingdom's here. Like we're seeing revival. And it's all really, really good. But actually sometimes that kind of environment creates this perfect opportunity for top-down leadership. Like we start to subconsciously feel like, look at that person who's got all of the gifting on stage. Look at that person who's like amazing at leading XYZ thing. And I'm just along for the ride. I'm just here. And I'm just so lucky to be part of this thing where this person gets to do their thing. And this could not be further from what Paul is envisioning for the church in Ephesians. Paul's vision is not only a church where everyone gets to play, so you're like invited to play, but that everyone actually does it. Everybody does play. And this was radical in Paul's day. And I would argue is still pretty radical for us. Our whole society is full to the brim of top-down leadership. Businesses, institutions, politics. You know, we could list and list and list significant places where there's, there's top-down leadership not saying that everything in it is bad. But what I am saying is that that's not what the church is supposed to be. Paul says we're not supposed to build up ourselves. So we're not supposed to be like climbing up a ladder and then like looking down below us like, oh, they're below us. We're supposed to build up the body of Christ that way. All of us (laughs) across the whole thing. All of us together building it up as one, as a family. Godly character is a person in humble service to others. 
It's personified in Jesus, right? It's being sensitive to the kind of we of the kingdom. And it's asking questions like, hang on a second, where do I fit in to this wider family? So it's like I and we. It's both. Operative words, family, we, us, together, unity. So just like I said at the beginning, unity is the ultimate consequence of the other two hallmarks of maturity. Gifting and godly character lead us into, I would argue, the biggest and most wonderful and most exciting and most extraordinary team sport of our lives. United kingdom building. This is what we're all created to do. And the thing is, it all sounds very nice. Up until this point, I'm just hopefully rising the faith in the room. We're all unified, let's get going. But it all sounds nice, but it's not that easy, is it? In fact, one of our values here at St. Peter's is that it feels like family, that church feels like family. But the thing is, we all know that family is actually quite messy, and it's quite hard, and it's quite confrontational. And it is where we make mistakes, and it's where we feel comfortable, hopefully, not all of us have, but hopefully it's where we feel comfortable to kind of like let it all hang out in all of the ways. And for some of us, on top of that, our experience of earthly family can make us particularly reticent to join anything that uses the word family. It's like, I literally have just managed to get out of my own earthly family. The idea of being in another capital F family where everybody in the entire, oh, maybe I'm not supposed to say capital F. And now it looks at me like, oh. <laughs> um, but the idea of being part of a big family where everyone's invited is like, whoa, that's like even worse than my earthly family. <laughs> So unity and family are a challenge. So how do we do it? As with everything in the Christian life, in some sense, this is actually something that happens to us and in us. It's not something we achieve. It's not something we like white knuckle to get to. It's not something we're like running the race until we get to the end and it's really intense. Our role is to invite Jesus into the mess. Our role is to ask him to help us and empower us. Our role is to, you know, go into conversations that we're going to find hard with church, you know, friends at church. Say something happens, you're in a confrontation, you go into a conversation. Our role is to be like, Lord, help me. <laughs> help us not be mean to each other. Help us do this well. Help us honor each other and love each other. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'm not saying it's perfect, but our role is to be like, spirit help us at every moment, please. We wanna be unified. It's in him that we grow in our gifting. It's in him that we become mature. It's in him that our family will be unified. Because it's, it's him that has unified us. He's already done the unifying, unifying work at the cross. He's already done it. And it's when we recognize that, receive it, get empowered by it, that our St. Peter's family will be transformed and united.
And I think in some sense it is particularly powerful for this evening service. And the reason I say that is because we, as this evening service, you know, we're at our like beginning stages. And we have the opportunity to really get to know each other. I know it's hard. But we have this opportunity to be like, actually, I see most of the same people every week and I kind of know who everybody looks like and who everybody is. We have this opportunity not just to get to know one another, but we then have this opportunity to then build from that foundation. Perhaps that's what God is inviting us into. Do you want to be part of building a foundation for this service? Do you want to be part of establishing that the evening service at St. Peter's we try out unity and, it, and we do it and it might be hard, but it's really beautiful and it's really messy. Maybe we can do it together. Maybe we can build a foundation for the evening service, hopefully for years to come for Broccoli. As Paul says in verse 15, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does, it, does its work. So this is what the church, this is what Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus. And I think actually what God, I hope, <laughs> is reminding and highlighting to us this evening. Firstly, that you are gifted individually in a really significant way. In a way that if you don't use it, if you don't feel free to use it, then actually the body of Christ, us, we suffer. We want you to be you. And also each of us individually and all of us corporately are being invited to look to Jesus as the head because he is the leader who will never let us down. He is our friend. He is the one who will never forsake us. He is the one who will never cause us to say, he's not who we thought he was. He is who we think he is. He tells us again and again and again, and we're being invited to experience that again and again and again. He will never let us down. He is the perfect, perfect leader for his kingdom. So as Paul says, shall we believe it? Should we get on with it? Do you want to? <laughs> because it's when we do this all together, when we get on with it, we'll start to, we will start to look like Jesus. And the thing is, that is what's attractive. Jesus is attractive. I can say that as someone who didn't grow up in this. The thing I was so attracted to was something that people had that I didn't have. The living Jesus in them, living inside of them, not just in them, but in their family. I remember when um, I first went to St. Mary's, um, and this was actually before I became a Christian, but I um, went to church with my friend from uni. And um, on my walk home, so I was trying to save money at the time, uni, um, and so I walked from Marlebone all the way to where I lived in Labrick Grove, and um, I was absolutely bawling <laughs> just the whole way home. And, I'd, and I kind of just 
I didn't, the thing is, I didn't believe in God at the time. So it wasn't like I knew where to go with it. I just had found the service really, really overwhelming. In both like good and like, wow, that was weird ways. Um, but the thing I kept thinking about, and actually the thing I went back to my friend Morena about afterwards, and we spoke for hours and hours about it, is I felt this deep sense of loneliness leaving the church service. And the reason I felt that was because I had watched her with all of her church friends. And I was like, I have never experienced friendship like that. Something about the way they engaged, something about the way they were friends and family and forgave each other and loved each other made me feel deeply lonely leaving. I'd never experienced it before. That's what Jesus does to us. So that people like me can only help but come back. Because all I, all I wanted was to be part of it. So I think there's lots of people in Brockley who want that too. Lots of people in South East London who want that too. So, let's get filled with the Spirit, guys. <laughs> let's do it. Um, why don't we stand, if you're able? And if you feel comfortable, why don't you just close your eyes, just so you're not distracted. And as we often say, you can also open your hands just as a sign of being like, whatever you want to do, Lord, I'm open. There's nothing like magic in it. It's just a sign of openness. And in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to um, receive the spirit and uh, to be prayed for. But I think seeing as I've done a whole talk on unity, the first thing 